The mythology of Twin Peaks has two sources. Uncanny images called from David Lynch's subconscious, and spiritual concepts drawn from Mark Frost's fascination with esoteric lore, mystical traditions, and the occult. Unarmed. Lynch's figures and motifs, the one-armed man named Mike, the long-haired drifter named Bob, the apparition of Laura Palmer, the dancing dwarf, the red room, the giant, and the creamed corn, are all introduced in the 20-minute alternate ending and the first few minutes of the premiere and follow-up in the second season. No explanation is given, and it is mostly up to Frost to draw connections and invent a framework for these dreams, visions, and visitations. A path is formed by laying one stone at a time. Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is focused exclusively on the mythology of Twin Peaks, of really Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, and uh, the missing pieces, the deleted scenes. So that is uh, interesting to sort of make that distinction, because really when you look at it, so much of the mythology of Twin Peaks, at least the original Twin Peaks, actually comes from this material. So there's so much to discuss here. I mean, arguably more in this single film than in the entire series. So let's get right into that. I want to actually play a clip from a Journey Through Twin Peaks video that sort of takes place earlier in the chronology. I made this video to run between the uh, near the end of the second season and the finale, and it leads into that. So it doesn't touch on Firewalk with me directly, but there's some stuff in here that I think plays out interesting. It's really more about Mark Frost's conception of the mythology, how he came up with the idea of the lodges and this this notion of sort of three theosophical concepts that I'll discuss in here. And then uh, I'll, I'll sort of tie it into Firewalk with me, as I think it does in some interesting ways. The general spirit of theosophy looms large over Twin Peaks, but its most explicit legacy can be found in three relatively minor Blavatsky concepts. First, and most minor, is the Dugpa, a spiritual opponent. Dugpas, they're called. They uh, cultivate evil for, for the sake of evil. Wyndham Earl's Dugpa speeches heavily sampled The Devil's Guard, a 1927 adventure book by Talbot Mundy. Dugpas, <laughs> as both Mundy and Blavatsky inaccurately represent them, are red-capped Tibetan priests choosing the left-handed path and practicing black magic. Their thematic importance to Twin Peaks mostly relates to Wyndham Earl, a worldly figure who has allied himself with dark forces to further materialist ends. Dugpas also present a possible warning for Cooper, Make a wish. should he choose to misuse his own powers. This place of power is tangible, and as such, it can be found. Spirituality can be used for good, but also for evil. The second, most famous theosophical concept is the Lodge a spiritual realm. Blavatsky spoke of the Great White Brotherhood in lieu of the White Lodge, but the ideas were similar. A force for good. Gentle fawns gambled there amidst happy, laughing spirits. Fighting an equally powerful force for evil. Twin Peaks locates these forces in physical reality, while keeping them rooted in the mind. In the Devil's Guard, the Dugpas can be found in a black lodge, their opponents in a white. However, Frost specifically cites the book Psychic Self-Defense, by the Glastonbury mystic Dion Fortune, as the chief inspiration for Twin Peaks' concept of the Black Lodge. Given that the author focuses on non-occult dangers of earthly secret societies, it seems unlikely Frost borrowed much more than the name. His own spin on this concept is more otherworldly and metaphysical. The lodges provide two paths for the spiritual seeker to take. Where can love open the doors? There. Meet your own shadow self. My people call it the dweller on the threshold. This brings us to the third, perhaps most important concept, 
the Dweller on the Threshold, a spiritual challenge. Dweller on the Threshold. The phrase appears only once in the show, and yet it is fundamental to the entire narrative construction. The Dweller of the Threshold first appears in Zanoni, a Rosicrucian novel written by Edward bulwer lytton decades before Blavatsky founded her society. In this book, the Dweller is a terrifying female spirit every initiate must face on the path to wisdom. But it is Alice Bailey, a writer Frost admires, who provides the key definition. During the Dweller on the Threshold sequence, I put up some text on the screen that I'll read out here from Alice Bailey, one of the uh, theosophists who influenced uh, Mark Frost a good deal. She wrote, The Dweller is the sum total of all the personality characteristics which have remained unconquered and unsubtle, and which must be finally overcome before initiation can be taken. Then the angel of the presence and the dweller stand face to face, and something must then be done. Eventually the light of the personal self fades out and wanes in the blaze of glory which emanates from the angel. This is, however, only possible when the personality eagerly enters into this relation with the angel and recognizes itself as the dweller. So that concept, when I saw that, I was so struck. I mean, something that was an influence on Frost ends up playing out so much more in a part that Lynch handled without Frost. So here's how I follow up on the idea of the Doug Puzzle, the Lodges, and the Dweller as they play out in Firewalk with me, where I don't think it's a direct influence. I don't think Lynch and Frost really talked about this stuff that much, but by working with the material Frost initiated, Lynch comes to some interesting places with it. Theosophical concepts of the Dogpa, the Lodges, and the Dweller on the Threshold evolve into something more organic and subtle. Leland's subconscious ability to call upon Bob, a slippery struggle between personified energies, both positive and negative, and Laura's recognition of Bob within herself. So really rich and fascinating to dig into this material, I think, and think about how Cooper's approach to the Dweller in a way contrasts with uh, Laura, if the dweller is understood in both cases as basically an emanation of their own dark side, and and how that contrast exists, how in the end Cooper essentially fails, and uh, and Laura is actually able to follow through on something that that he could not in that light, and how the angel, as it says, like the the, the personal self fades out and wanes in the blaze of glory which emanates from the angel, but only when the the person in question recognizes themselves as the dweller. Cooper runs away from the dweller. Uh, Laura does not. She already knows that part. The question is, can she find something redemptive in herself? We already know that she's not a, I don't know if she's afraid, maybe she is afraid, but she's not um, unable to see the, the dark side of herself. It's, you know, can she see the light side as well? So moving through some of the stuff that's in the film, uh, the first real mythological element to enter into it is the ring. Uh, we don't know right away that it, it has that kind of supernatural function. We see that more as the film goes along, a spiritual significance that uh, it, it seems to carry. Uh, it's a very ambiguous symbol. Uh, I have my read of it, which I'll get into a little here and talk about more as we talk about why Laura was killed. But we see it first as an absence. There's just a spot on Teresa's finger where it's like a clean spot surrounded by the dirt. So the ring was kind of, if we look at it that way, the ring was some sort of 
exception or um, uh, protection almost against the dirt and the grime that surrounded her. So there's like almost a positive connotation there, even for all the negative connotations we might come up with. Uh, and I don't know, you know, to what extent it's the dirt that is around it or if it's gray blue from the end of the blood circulation in her, you know, in her corpse. But if that's the case too, then it's like, okay, so this spot where the ring was, was a spot that was still kind of, um, alive in a sense, in a weird way. Like it's the only part of her body that doesn't look like a corpse. So obviously if that imprint of the ring is there, you know, and all of this, uh, the, the sort of the color or whatever came after she died, whether it be dirt or whatever else from being wrapped up and sent down the river, um, that would suggest that the ring was on her finger when she was wrapped up. The odd thing about this is if you look back at the flashback they show later in the trailer, she doesn't have the ring on her finger. And she's even holding her hand, like her, her left arm is numb, in front of her face to make sure that if we want to, most people will miss it because it's going so fast. The camera's flying down as Leland races at her with the the axe or the bat or whatever it is that he ends up killing her with. If, if we want to look at it, it's right there, like Lynch is putting in our face that she's not wearing the ring. So the idea would then seem to be the ring was placed on her finger after she was killed for whatever reason. And uh, then it was, she, you know, somehow taken off before the FBI arrived there. So would that mean that the uh, that the the sheriff station deputies and so forth that they they took the ring from the corpse uh, the, themselves? How how did it then get to Philip Gerard, who's the one who waves at Leland? There's all sorts of questions about that. But we also then see the ring. Teresa has it in pictures, but it's blurry, so we can't see what the symbol is. We find that out later. There's the number six pole in the Deer Meadow. Um, or the Fat Trout Trailer Park um, around this time when, when we're first learning about Teresa's ring, where we hear this kind of whoop, and it uh, later we realize that's the sound that the arm makes. He even says, I'm the arm and I make this sound. And of course, when I'm talking about the arm, I'm talking about the little man or the man from another place, uh, whatever you want to call him, the little character who dances around the Red Room on the show. We learn in this film that he is the arm, and it's implied in the final scene, of course, that he is the uh, one-armed man's missing arm. And since that arm was cut off because it had the fire walk with me tattoo and it was considered evil and that was what worked in concert with Bob, it would stand to reason, okay, then the little man must be working with Bob, but he seems to be working against him through much of this film. There's an odd sort of relationship between them that's going on there. But whatever he is, he does seem to have some sort of presence in this trailer park with the, uh, the association with that pole that uh, we both see in the moment where the ice pack lady comes up and then Carl Rod stares off into space and says, uh, you know, I've, I've already been places. I just want to stay where I am. And then we see again when Chet Desmond comes into the park and he's left alone for a moment. He looks up and that's what kind of guides him or leads him to the, the uh, Chalfont trailer. And the Chalfonts is the name given in this film to the grandmother and the grandson implicitly uh, that, you know, that, Carl Rod says, oh, there, there was a grandmother and grandson that lived there. And then in Twin Peaks, they're known as the Tremonts. So they seemed, and he says something too, where it's like, you know, the funny thing is there were two Chalfonts. There was a, there was people who lived here before them were known as Chalfonts too. That's weird. And it's reminiscent of how on the show, the Tremonts, uh, when they finally meet uh, Mrs. Tremont, she's this different woman 
that uh, Donna says, this wasn't the woman I delivered meals on wheels to. Do you have, you know, your mother? Oh, my mother's been dead for years. So it's like somehow these spirits, and we do see them in the room above the convenience store with the little man, the jumping man, and all the others. They are uh, associated with, like, they're in the human world. They somehow are like riding along with other people's residences. So, so, so their form of like hosting or, or, or being hosted in a way is different. It's like they almost impose their whole kind of environment on a, uh, on a, on a residence and somehow appear to people in that way. It's, it's a very odd sort of mechanics. I think to me, the Tremont Chalfont thing is one of the oddest uh, spiritual concepts in Twin Peaks, one of the oddest supernatural sort of mythos things that is really hard to sort of piece your mind around. But I think, again, everything in this film seems to follow a certain psychological function or respond to something the characters need or want. And the Tremonts seem to constantly show up sort of in concert with the little man to show Laura options and openings and things that will in some way direct her away not even necessarily away from, but beyond Bob to show her things that are not totally within Bob's uh, purview. And a lot of people have read in the film that uh, a sort of a conflict where it's not that the spirits are like good versus evil, but that they have a certain order and a certain way of doing things. And Bob is in defiance of that. He's gotten kind of greedy and has his own agenda that he's out for. And so they're out to, uh, to stop him basically. And you get the sense that if on the show, you know, Mike says when he takes control, the one-armed man says, you know, I am, I, my job is to hunt Bob, to find him, to stop him. And there's a sense of him as like a, a, a spirit that's, that was dark and has gone good and is now trying to work for good. But maybe there's a more complicated, maybe that's what he tells the humans to be understood by them. But really he's trying to kind of put things back in a certain form of balance. And that balance seems to have to do with the Garmin Bosia, the pain and sorrow, which is what we learn the creamed corn signifies. And uh, interestingly enough on the show, Mrs. Tremont says that she doesn't like creamed corn. I didn't want any creamed corn on my plate. And then Lynch in the film turns it into something that the little man, who again does seem to be often working in concert with the Tremont, showing Laura, um, things, whether it be the ring or the open door that can sort of help her understand her situation better and get out from under Bob in some way. But the little man, the 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 arm, clearly does uh, like Garmin Bosey. He, he eats it down in the end. And uh, the other, the, the, the Tremonts apparently do not. So to go on, I guess, to the other things as the motifs kind of arise, we're not really going in chronological order here. We're just kind of pulling things out and talking about them as as uh, as they come and seeing what they lead to. Uh, we do have one more moment with the ring, of course, in the trailer park where Chet Desmond does finally find it on a mound under the trailer, interestingly enough, the same way that the half-heart necklace uh, was found in the uh, pilot on a mound of dirt below the crime scene, since we know that uh, Teresa was actually killed in the Tremont trailer, according to production documents. And if you look at the trailer, it's not her trailer that she's in in the uh in this so both cooper and chet get the intuition that whatever happened seemed to really happen over in this area over here away from Teresa's trailer they're just kind of led there in some sense and i think maybe in the sense that the tremons or the or the uh, 
one-armed man or whatever wants them to kind of know to look in that direction. Um, of course, Chet is then not able to report that back to anybody, so why that happens is a more open kind of question. I don't really buy that he just takes the ring and it zaps him into the lodge. I don't think, I mean, we see Teresa wearing it throughout the film and she's not transported to the lodge. So I, it's not like if you touch it, that's what happens necessarily, at least in this context with what we've seen here. But uh, maybe we'll talk more about that later. When we get to the FBI, we have uh, Cooper seeing himself in the surveillance. And again, as I've already mentioned a couple times, this is uh, a very much a callback to the idea of the splitting, the doubling, the doppelganger, there being two Coopers, and uh, that's fed into as well by Jeffries again, as I mentioned, saying, who do you think that is there, pointing at Cooper. It's really another way in which Cooper's authority is kind of undercut in this film, uh, with Jeffries, this character we've never met before, knowing more about Cooper than anyone else, and really even than Cooper himself does at this point and uh, kind of pulling the rug out from under him as, as a hero figure in that moment, both in the sense that he confuses Cooper and in the sense that he's uh, pointing out something dark about Cooper that, that will come into it eventually. And there's a, a line that Jeffrey says that I don't think I've mentioned at all in this hours-long podcast up to this point, where he says, well, now, I'm not going to talk about Judy. In fact, we're not going to talk about Judy at all. We're going to keep her out of it. And uh, I've already mentioned that the monkey says Judy, and it seems in some way to be associated with Laura at the close of the film. But in the context of this movie, that's really all we get about it. There have been all kinds of theories over the years, particularly before season three, talking about um, what could Judy mean? Will we find out more when they bring the show back? Talking about the idea of Judy as like a code name for Laura. Also, Judy as Jeffrey's own version of Teresa or Laura, like his blue rose woman that he was sort of hunting the 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 killer of or whatever um others can other th there was some talk by robert engels the writer that maybe judy was going to be josie's sister that him and lynch bandied that idea about and there's all kinds of possibilities clearly the monkey whispering judy at the end was uh something that lynch added after the fact it's not in the script i uh, it's it's not something that goes with what had been written necessarily with Jeffrey's talking about Judy, but something that w where it's like if he leaves that bit in, maybe there should be a callback to it in the end that makes it seem like it has to do with Laura somehow. That's kind of how I always read that. Uh, one other thing to note is uh, in Vertigo, there are multiple characters that the detective gets involved with. I won't say too much to spoil Vertigo, just to say that there are, these women have uh, different names. One, there's uh, the name Madeline, Fer or his name is Ferguson, Scotty Ferguson, the detective. Madeline is uh, one of the women, and Judy is another woman there. And uh, there's a sense in which their identity is blurred together in some sense. He sees one in the other and so forth. So that's another thing of like, and, and of course, Lynch is a big Wizard of Oz fan. So there's Judy Garland. So all of these possible Judys, when season three came along, a lot of people felt like maybe Judy's going to come back into this somehow. And they kind of waited to see what would happen there. And as whether something will happen, we'll talk about that when we talk about season three. I'll, so I'm going to follow Jeffrey's uh, suit and say we're, we're, we're not going to talk about Judy uh, beyond what I've already said. But I will link below John Thorne's uh, essay on Judy and what she could possibly mean from before season three in like 2009, I think. I think it's from maybe from earlier something he might have written in Wrapped in Plastic magazine. 
uh, when that was active about possibilities of Judy's identity with, with Laura and kind of theorizing that it's a code for Laura. So as Jeffries comes into it, of course, we dissolve into that thrilling lodge sequence. I really love this. Some people find it doesn't, it's too choppy or whatever. I, I really like the way it's edited in Firewalk with me, this idea that we're kind of phasing in and out between worlds and it's bombarding us. We're too overwhelmed by all of the words and images to make sense of them, even though they're they're already confusing to begin with. And I like that kind of disorientation sense watching this film, but you really feel something at that moment. It's not just that it phases in and out and there's the static. It's the specific image it fades into um, or dissolves into from Jeffries. And that's the jumping man, which is one of the most terrifying images uh, in a film, just so uncanny, like the definition of uncanny gets under your skin. You can't quite explain why. And it's, it's, it's so nerve wracking. Supposedly the actor who plays, uh, I think his name's is it Carlton Lee Russell, who plays the jumping man. He said that Lynch told him to uh, behave like, oh, what was the word? I think it was a dancing totem or something. And it was, it, it was this idea of like a talisman. I think that's what he said, a, a moving talisman, a talisman come to life. And so he moves in this kind of jerky way and he's got this expression with the big nose sticking out. And the, Oh, it's, it's, it, it gives me the goosebumps. So uh, let's go through everything that's said in this sequence. Uh, just break it down because it is easy to miss as it flows by, even though it's all in subtitles. Uh, Jeffrey says, I sure as hell want to tell you everything, but I haven't got a whole lot to go on. And that's when the creatures say for the first time, I think the the little man, the arm says, Garmin Bosia, this is a Formica table. And Jeffrey says, oh, believe me, I followed. And uh, continuing to speak about the Formica table, the little man says, green is its color. Jeffrey says, it was a dream. We live inside of a dream. And at that point, the little, the grandson sitting in the back points and says, fell a victim. The little man holds up the ring towards Bob uh, this is one of those lines that does make people think like, okay, the, the arm and Bob are partners. They're working in concert in this film. He says, with this ring, I thee wed. And Jeffrey says, the ring, ring. It was above a convenience store. And then we have a close-up inside the mouth of one of the, uh, I think the electrician sitting next to the figures known as the woodsman saying, e, or near the figures known as the woodsman saying, electricity. Jeffrey says, listen up and listen carefully. I've been to one of their meetings. Hell God, baby, damn, no, I found something. And that's what we get for the dialogue in that sequence. Uh, if you look at the imagery, what we see, there's four bowls of Garmin Bosia, which is, the, again, the creamed corn. Uh, we, we get a nice helpful close-up. Like, Lynch is actually, in some cases, very clear and direct about what things mean and are in this film. So we get the close-up of the bowl of the creamed corn and the line, Garmin Bosia, or this is Garmin Bosia. Okay, we got it. And then at the end of the film, when he asks for Garmin Bosia, he goes even further. This was something not scripted. I think in the subtitle, it was supposed to say corn, Garmin Bosia, parentheses, corn. And instead, what it says, this is something obviously changed in the editing, he wanted to reveal something, which Lynch doesn't always want to do, and that was what the Garmin Bosia is pain and sorrow. Very significant revelation for him to just put out there in a subtitle. So the spirits seem to be devouring this substance, or we you know, we don't we, we do see the little man eat it in the end, but at this point it's just sitting there on the table ready to be eaten. They're collecting it. I always thought it was funny how 
the room above the convenience store looks a lot like Dead Dog Farm in season two, something we don't think Lynch had a lot to do with, but maybe he came up with that location, uh, even though he wasn't very involved with those episodes. But in Dead Dog Farm, you have these ratty, burnt curtains hanging down, the wallpaper, everything's scuzzy. They have a Formica table or one, you know, that type of material table. And uh, the Cooper finds uh, the baby laxative that they're cutting the cocaine with inside of it. So these criminals, these real-world human criminals, gather there to do their drug dealing. And of course, in uh, this in this world, in Firewalk with Me, we have the spirits gathering to do their own kind of transactions of this illicit substance, this Garmin Bosia. So I, I kind of found that a amazing. Uh, parallel there. So we see four bowls of the Garmin Bosia on the Formica table. Uh, there's two white kind of flat bowls, one big metal one, and then one smaller kind of steeper metal one, deeper a deeper uh, metal bowl there. So four bowls on that table of different shapes and sizes. Uh, well, different, same shape. They're all, you know, bowls, but <laughs> they're different sizes, different material. And there's a missing circular spot on the Formica table, which others, I cannot I claim credit for this. I love this observation, but others have pointed out that uh, it's the shape of the ring. And of course, the ring is green, like the uh, table, and, and the little man calls attention to that. Green is its color, and he waves his hand over that spot. So there's this idea that if whatever the Formica table represents, if it's the world that these spirits kind of, the human world that they kind of rule over or something, somehow this ring was taken from this table, from this substance. And uh, and it somehow relates to their the 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 sort of the the it's like a conduit between the two worlds in that sense. So the little man is sitting in a wire chair. Bob is in a folding chair at this table. There's a black metal stool in between them and the others who are in the back of this room on a grungy gray tan brownish couch. The grandson is slouched. Uh, the grandmother is on one arm. I think the grandson has like the mask up over his head and he pulls it down at one point. And then when it, it, it's pulled, pulled off again, you see the, uh, the monkey underneath. There's a bearded woodsman in a chair near the couch. Uh, a man in a woolen hat and sweatpants is on the other end of the couch. Um, interestingly, you know, uh, Twin Peaks has often been noted for its lack of diversity. The only black character, I think, in this entire film is this electrician in the spirit world, although the jumping man is played by a, uh, a black actor as well. Interesting that that's where Lynch does bring black actors in often. Same thing with Jimmy Scott in the uh, final episode of Twin Peaks. It's like within his kind of uh, classic mid-century American small-town world, they're just they're almost entirely white characters, a few Native Americans. And uh, only when he kind of steps out of that into this uh, into the spirit realm for some reason, does he bring in, you know, make of that what you will, but uh, just interesting to note. Uh, the jumping man is jumping around, meanwhile, on the side of this frame, sort of over in a corner uh, with a crate and some smoke wafting up in a spotlight. And there's an upside down bucket next to him that looks like it might have had Garmin Bosia kind of spilled around the edges. There's something spilled around it as it's turned upside down. So all of that unfolds in that amazing sequence with Jeffrey in the lodge, just a as I've said in the other parts of the podcast, a mother load of mythology to, to piece out and try to piece together. Uh, would they call down after Jeffrey's gone? Albert says, I've got the front desk now. He was never here. We talked about that already, how he, 
it, it's it said he that he disappeared, but then they confirm he was there by rewatching the video. So somehow video, this may be an important thing to keep in mind. Video is able to kind of tell the truth about a spiritual reality. It, it captures a certain fundamental that you know may be missed in other ways. When uh, Cooper goes to the trailer park and he learns about the Chow fonts from Carl Rod. Uh, he also sees Let's Rock on the windshield, and of course that's what uh, the little man says to him in his dream that he has where he sees Laura in the Red Room. Something I love about this is it has that kind of double possibility where is this the spirits communicating, kind of leaving a signature, a sign, we were here, let's rock. Uh, or did Cooper see this, that some teenager scrawled on the car, and as he reflects over it in his mind later on, he has the little man saying let's rock. Now, of course, we have so much to go on at this point that the mythology exists independently of Cooper's dream and, and all of that. So it, it, doesn't, it doesn't quite work in that other, more human way. But I, I like the fact that it's even a, a possibility to kind of think of uh, who's forming who here. Are the humans sort of forming the spirits or the spirits forming the humans? Are they interacting, calling upon one another, bringing one another in? I read a passage earlier in the critical responses section talking about uh, this one author, I think Brett Abelman was his name, we're talking about this idea that the humans have like their emotions and their needs and the spirits have what they want to sort of feed upon and the humans call upon the spirits. So it's almost like a collaboration between them there, uh, working on both levels at once. And I think a lot of Lynch works on both levels. It's almost wrong to kind of totally pin it down to one thing necessarily. Uh, throughout where you talk about the Blue Rose cases, uh, Cooper says this is one of Cole's Blue Rose cases. People interpreted this at the time as meaning it's like a supernatural case. Others thought, no, it has more to do with like something that's unknown. Maybe it has something to do with a young woman being murdered. Uh, we don't really get confirmation in this film of whether that is a mythological kind of supernatural designation or not. Uh, when we get to the second film, the first sign of uh, the second part of the film, I should say, although it sometimes feels like a second film. The first real sign of Bob is the ripped diary pages and Laura. So it's like bringing us back to the spirit world after we've kind of traveled afar from it. Uh, she says when she's talking to Harold, he says he wants to be me or he'll kill me. I thought she had said originally he wants to be in me, which sort of has a double connotation in a way. Um, but I think she says he wants to be me. He wants to actually, and he says later on when she's under the fire, uh, under the fan rather, she says, I want to taste through your mouth. Or he says to her, Bob. So there is this sense that like he wants to live life through her. And again, I think that to me feeds into this idea of like the spirits aren't just looking for empty vessels to take over. Like they need what is in the person to sort of feed upon there. Uh, when she's talking to Harold, she when she says, fire walk with me, actually saying, I think is the only time the title said in the film as it exists. Um, there isn't much fire in the film. Interestingly enough, there's that shot of the fireplace. Uh, there's a shot of the fireplace in the cabin where it kind of comes alive and it's like, you know, the music, there's a stinger kind of in the music and it's like, yeah, the fire is really coming here. But for the most part, it's a very symbolic fire, not something that Lynch chooses to correspond with like a visual motif that much. Water feels more like a motif given the blue static and all of the uh, connotations that that has, as, as I already mentioned before. Her face turns whitish blue. She has lips uh, brightened. Her eyes are sort of yellowy. Her teeth are yellowy. 
very similar to Wyndham's look in episode 28 uh, before the Miss Twin Peaks con uh, uh, contest where he comes into the cabin, terrorizes Leland, and he pulls the bag away from his face and he's got like this ink kind of in his teeth. It was inspired by Japanese cinema. I mentioned that in that episode, how director Tim Hunter was watching a lot of Japanese films because he knew he was going to have to shoot really slowly given the uh, cameraman's pace lately. So he's looking at like Mizuguchi and Ozu. How do they handle long sequences without much cutting? And he was struck by the images, uh, particularly in Mizuguchi's films, of like these Japanese women with this white face paint and the, the stuff between their teeth and all of that. So Lynch could have built upon Tim Hunter's idea, but this look also resembles makeup that Lynch would use in his early films, like the alphabet. There's like a fake, uh, what's it called? Fake Anison commercial, I think maybe he does it with. I know the one where um, the creature, the, or the person is approaching a woman through like a field. I can't remember what that one's called, like abstract feeling of fear or something, you know, very Lynchian name. And then, of course, the grandmother with the little boy and the parents and everyone is kind of made up this way. So this is something that goes back with Lynch already, and he's bringing it back in Firewalk Me. And, of course, we see the same look in the end when Leland looks up in agony in the uh, in Glastonbury Grove before the, the curtain kind of opens to bring him in. So the fear that he's feeling maybe opens the door there. When she's talking to Harold, Laura says something about, I thought she said the trees, and I've heard other people think this too, like she says, the trees, James, like, you know, Bob is out in the trees, they're going to get, he's going to get James, if I'm not careful. I think what she actually said is, maybe, Teresa, in that moment, um, Teresa, James, like, that, well, but no, you know, now that I think about it, maybe she does say the trees, because... Why would she think Teresa was killed? She doesn't have any reason at this point to think Teresa was killed by Bob. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to think about that actually. Maybe it is a more of a mythological motif than I thought that she says the trees, the trees, and later in the end when she is embracing James, of course she screams, looking out into the trees like she sees something there. Who knows what she sees? What could it be? When the Tremonts arrive at the diner, there's static imposed over them in and out fluctuating and the little boy is carrying a little stick looks almost like a slingshot or maybe a divining rod and he's wearing the mask with the long nose and a little twig sticking out on top whatever the significance of that is there and what's funny about them is they if you look at the shot where like Lara is first walking into the parking lot she's not looking in their direction there's like a random shot where they don't seem to be there. But if I remember correctly, they actually are on the other side of the street. So they are present, like it's just possible for them to have gotten there. But would the old lady really have moved so fast? And then again, when like Shelly comes over and Laura looks away, the tree mounts are like already on the other side of the street. So it's like there's just the slim possibility that they didn't just materialize there, but... Uh, it's they're moving awfully fast if, if they didn't. So there's that kind of haunting aspect there. And then also uh, when the, the, when they arrive, the song on the soundtrack, The Black Dog Runs at Night is playing, or the, the kind of the rhythm. It's almost not a song, just The Black Dog Runs at Night playing and thumping along. And the uh, grandmother, Mrs. Tremont, says, this would look nice on your wall, showing her the picture of the open door. So again, encouraging her to use this object to help her 
identify Bob and identify a way beyond her, her suffering. So it's hard for me to see these as like just purely evil entities manipulating her in concert with Bob. I really don't see that. It seems like whatever their purpose is, they're at odds with Bob in this movie. The little boy says the man behind the mask is looking for the book with the pages torn out. He's under the fan now and he whispers this. And it's just like, it's this whole sequence is so creepy. It's this like afternoon daydream nightmare. And there's a lot of fire walk with me that's like that. And it's just a great quality to do this kind of horror film in the open sunlight. Uh, it's disturbing information filtered through an already unsettling image and sound. So it's, I don't know, it's just uncanny and shocking at the same time. And something about Pierre, it's almost like he's like the presence of incest manifest in some weird way. The whisper out in the open, the fact that he he kind of dresses up in a way like Leland, like people have associated him with Leland. Um, and Leland has talked about how he met Bob when he was at his grandfather's place. So is he the grandson in a sense? Of course, Lynch made the the film about the grandson who makes a grandmother. Like there's just all these different and wears like a little suit like this boy does so there's all these different aspects to it people have called him the magician as well uh the fact that he performs a magic trick on the show with the creamed corn in his cupped hands he's played by david lynch's son looks like david lynch you know is he the magician behind it all there's there's all these kind of different connotations and possibilities one of the rare children in twin peaks too like really almost the only one i can think of of any prominence of this sort uh, the one moment I will say, I talked about how they sort of disappear across the street in some way, but we do have uh, a moment later in the film when, when Leland has the flashback where the boy actually does vanish into thin air. And uh, so so at that point, it's almost like an admission of, yes, they are spirits. They are not quite flesh and blood. Inside of Laura's uh, bedroom, when we see Bob and he roars and we go inside the mouth, it's the same shot as we did uh, with this the, above the store with the electrician where he says electricity going inside the mouth as Bob is screaming just th this amazing kind of fleshy uh, image given that Bob is supposed to be sort of incorporeal but that's always something that's been fascinating about Bob is he carries the spiritual significance but he has such an earthy presence in the same way it's just a stroke of brilliance for Lynch to have cast Frank Silva in this part and, and used him this way. It's so well done. When uh, Leland is looking under Laura's uh, finger, saying there's dirt under this fingernail, of course, that's where uh, he, in concert with Bob, will place the letter under her nail in the final scene, which it happens to be R, interestingly enough, since Teresa's was a T, which we can talk about in the mystery part. Interestingly, too, the obsession with dirt and the idea that, like, whether it be, you know, Bob acting through or something that Le that Bob responds to in Leland, that there's this obsession with dirtiness and cleanliness, and suddenly the demonic is uh, enforced order and cleanliness, not dirt and chaos, as it's sometimes suggested to be with Bob, who's this kind of figure who looks like he might be a drifter, somebody sketchy you see in the corner of the street or somewhere, and you kind of try to stay away from it. It's like, no, like the, the real demon is here in the home, clean-cut, middle-class family man. When Laura asks the angel in the portrait, is it true, is it true, wondering about what she saw earlier with her father coming out of the house after she'd seen Bob. Uh, there's a very extreme close-up of the wings in the uh, painting where the camera kind of glides up the wing. 
and very reminiscent of how Lynch shoots the angel's wing in the end in the Red Room. He even cast an actress in that sequence who looks like the angel in the painting, and actually it's an actress he used already, or that the show used, Lorna McMillan, who, believe it or not, is a contestant in the Miss Twin Peaks contest. Strange connection there, but he remembered her photo from casting, and she looked like this angel in the picture, and he put her in there. There's a great interview with this actress that I will link below as well, so you can check that out yourself. As Laura is looking at this wing in this moment, where she's still in the room and it's still just a picture, it kind of leads to this bush of, of flowers um, in the top kind of part of the frame, and that may lead her to associate it with either the bush that the, the door picture is out under in the yard or the actual wallpaper in the door picture where it's this kind of flowers. Something reminds her we have that flash of the open door picture and she goes out and gets it and uh, puts it up on the wall there and then that leads into the dream sequence. A wonderful symbol there, that, that, that open door on, on so many levels. And it serves as an actual gateway into this other space, which could be the room above the store, although I think people have pointed out the wallpaper is actually a little different there. It's not exactly the same space, but has a kind of a similarity to it, like there maybe one leads to the other or something like that. Inside of that space, the tree men's usher her along. Uh, they Again, they always seem to be facilitators in some particular way. And uh, this is where we're introduced to the concept of the little man being the arm, says, I am the arm, and I sound like this, makes the whooping noise. So again, Lynch telling us things throughout this movie. It's not totally cryptic and cagey, although people often feel overwhelmed, like, I have no idea what's going on, but he's giving us little nudges, like, hey, look at this. This is what this is. Uh, this is where we see the owl cave ring on the symbol for the first time. Uh, up to this point in the movie, the entire significance of that ring is that it was something Teresa had that was taken. So it embodied the secret of her death and the reason that she was killed in narrative terms. But now, uh, is it still serving that purpose? Are we getting something else with it? Uh, the fact that it has an owl cave symbol on it really starts to change things because that symbol was, you know, totally part of the almost kind of hokey mythology on the show where they go down into the cave and they find the petroglyph that guides them to the lodge and all of that. So for Lynch to take that, and it's an elongated version of that, it's not the exact same symbol, but uh, it's it's stretched out so that it's more of like a, a, I think oblong is the right word, if I'm using that correctly, of a diamond um, rather than just a perfect square turned on its side. There's like a little tail to it as well. I thought, and um, again, I think this might have been, there was a commentator on the Dugpa forum around 2014 when I was getting back into this stuff who, who may have actually drawn this connection. Um, I, I can't remember, so I'll give them the credit. I think their name, they went by the name of, uh, was it Fernanda? Or it was, yeah, Fernanda, I think was the name they used on there. And uh, they, or somehow they suggested something with their, like, they would do these sort of cryptic image juxtapositions and you would kind of draw your own conclusions. And something about it suggested the idea that maybe this symbol is not an owl, but actually a stalk of corn. Like, it almost looks like a corn in a cornfield with the little uh, ferns kind of hanging off of it and the longer rather than squarish shape and the little stalk below it. So, I don't know, if you're thinking about corn and Garmin Bosia, that's an interesting conclusion to draw. I always liked that idea. Cooper tells Laura, don't take the ring, but of course, in the end, her taking of the ring is what's associated with 
Bob having to kill her and Bob having to kill her or Leland and Bob or whatever the, the sperm may be is associated on the show with her refusing to be possessed, refusing to be uh, taken over. And we can, we'll, we'll flesh that out, what that concept, how that plays out in human terms. But uh, so, so therefore it would seem that taking the ring in the end is actually a good thing. Uh, so why does Cooper say not to? Is it because he can only see it will lead to her death? Some have posited a more cynical motive, like he doesn't want to end up in the lodge, and if she takes the ring, she won't end up murdered. She won't end up. He won't end up coming to get her. Um, or, or yeah, if she take doesn't take the ring and she isn't killed, he doesn't come to Twin Peaks to get her. He won't end up in the lodge. I'm not quite sure about that. I, I don't think Cooper quite thinks of things in those ways. But I think he just does intuit the kind of the danger and the force around it. And his response to that is, oh, no, don't, don't, this is too much. This is too powerful. Don't take it. Um, I suspect he's wrong about that. Um, but be that as it may, it's a, it's a very interesting that Lynch chooses to have him say that. And that, of course, in this film, as we've mentioned numerous times, Cooper is not a particularly reliable hero, whatever his intentions so it, it that plays out in that sense, too. There's also interesting things to note about his hair in these sequences in the Red Room. It's, like, slicked back sometimes and more raised at others. Like, when it's more raised, it looks like the cut he had in parts of season two and sort of slicked back, or I don't think it's to the side. I think it's more slicked back. It's like a look he had more in season one i don't know if i'm exactly getting it right but i know he had longer hair around the time he was shooting the movie the doors about jim morrison um he is ray manzarek in that film i think so he had long hair for the 60s sequences and lynch had him slicking it back as cooper in uh and it, it so it gave him a little bit of a different look and scott ryan has theorized that when he has the more raised hair, it's like, we know that this is the Cooper in the lodge from the end of the series. And when he doesn't, it's the Cooper from before. And there may even be some sequences in the red room where he does have the slick. It's like, okay, so in these parts, he's dreaming that he's with Lara. In the other parts, he's actually really in the lodge already. I mean, the time stuff gets so crazy here, but uh, it's an interesting idea to explore. And he's discussed this, I believe, on Twin Peaks Unwrapped, among other places. So I'll link up that particular episode. It's a multi-part, like John Thorne and I and others are on it, commenting on Firewalk with me. So you're going to have to uh, find the spot where he talks about it, but it's in there. Uh, then there's also the when, when the that part of the dream ends when Cooper says don't take the the ring. Lara holds her arm by her side. It's numb, uh, much like Teresa's arm was described as being numb. The waitress says before her time. Now, what does that mean exactly? Is that like is she saying you know is she using this sort of colloquial expression of like her for her period, or is she saying before she was killed, or what exactly? We don't know, but there is this idea that like the left arm goes numb. And it probably has something to do with the ring. Now, what's interesting is when Laura opens her hand and sees the ring, her arm is not numb. It's it's held out there like she's able to, to, to work it regularly. And also, Teresa, when we do see her the one time we know her arm is numb is when she's like holding it in front of her like she can't move it. Sort of the way that Laura holds her arm in this bed sequence. And that's when Leland is racing up to kill her. And as we've already discussed in that moment, Teresa doesn't have the ring. So to me, what that suggests is the arm is numb when it isn't uh, 
holding the ring. But then, you know, that, that, that at least as it's used in the context of this film, that's sort of the con the conclusion that I came away with watching it and, and looking at those, those sequences closely. When Laura turns to look at uh, the hallway, the door is closed, which is an interesting sign. Also, when she later steps out into it, the fan is off. So again, the presence of Bob kind of blocked out in this moment. Bob is not a part of what's going on as she receives these messages or visitations from the other side in the midst of this dream with the little man with the door that was given to her by the Tremonts Annie appears to talk about Cooper and the good Dale being in the lodge and so again it it feels like these are all counter forces to Bob working together I really don't get the sense that they're teamed up with Bob it just doesn't feel right with anything the movie gives us we have uh, Laura when she steps out into the the hallway, watching herself, turning around, seeing herself in the painting. This is very reminiscent of Cooper seeing himself on the surveillance screen. Make of that what you will. Uh, John Thorne, when he talks about the dream, the Cooper dream theory, it's like, well, here's a way this parallels Laura's own dream later in the film, where the characters are seeing themselves frozen in a, in a frame. Uh, although she's not actually quite frozen. She's looking back over and, and there's this kind of flipping between whose consciousness are we in, the Laura in the door, the Laura in the painting, the Laura in the bed, uh, all of these different Lars, and they're all kind of manifestations from the same being in some way. It's also a counterpoint for the mirror at the end of the film, when Laura is forced to look in the mirror and see herself, and she transforms into Bob, but because they've given her a vision already, of who she is that isn't Bob, looking at herself in a kind of a, a different reflection. That too offers a way out from under what Bob is trying to enclose her in at the end of the film. In the scene where Gerard is waving the ring around at Leland and Lara, uh, there's a black dog barking in the background somewhere. I mean, it's not even like the spatial relations aren't made clear. It's almost just Eisensteinian, like where you, you know, you use montage you use editing to kind of compare two things that aren't even necessarily existing in the same space, just like drawing an analogy. So the the man, the, the one-armed man screaming at them and cutting to the dog barking almost feels like that. Like, this is like a dog barking, let's just saying. And uh, as as Gerard is uh, wearing the ring, we can wonder, did he is he the one who took it from Teresa's body? Did he kind of pull her out from the river before she was found and take the ring? Or is he the one who put it on her at one point? Uh, why would the ring be, you know, what what purpose would the ring serve in that context? And uh, he says, so what he actually says to them, and it can be hard to hear above the honking and all that, he says, you stole the corn under the can over the store and miss the look on her face when it was opened. There was a stillness like the Formica tabletop. The thread will be torn, Mr. Palmer. The thread will be torn. It's him. It's your father. So he's speaking to both of them in turn. And of course, speaking of the can, the corn and the store, it's this idea of stealing the Garmin Bosia that maybe belonged to all of them. So there are theories about this, ideas whereby we kind of wonder, did Bob take uh, more than his share? Was he too controlling? Was was uh, Leland supposed to be exposed in some way that then would have balanced things out? There, there's all sorts of possibilities. There's also something uh, I suppose I'll get into here because I don't think I have anywhere else in the show to necessarily mention it. Um, 
I can dig into it a little. It was talked about when I talked about the spirits as a whole, but this idea that Mike, you know, on the show, we're told Bob is, Bob feeds upon fear and the pleasures. And in the film, they talk about Garmin Bosia, pain and sorrows. So it almost makes you wonder, well, wait a second. So I thought he fed on, on something else. I thought that was what he, he was his kind of fuel. And I had the idea of thinking, well, maybe pain and sorrow, maybe he doesn't actually eat Garmin Bosia. Maybe he, by hoarding the fear and, and, and pleasures of a character, he is keeping the pain and sorrow from, from the others. Like he's, he's keeping, you know, they're not able to feast on that. And almost this idea of, um, the other, how would I put this? So if he possesses Laura, she's not experiencing necessarily pain and sorrow. She's indulging in her fear. She's, uh, she's following these sort of illicit pleasures and he's getting his, uh, his, his kind of, um, his fuel from that. Whereas the others are not getting the pain. Sorry. Now, if she, if she dies, if Leland is exposed, his grief is now something. So it's almost like a tug of war between these forces, these emotional forces. And I like that idea too, because it takes it a little bit out of the like spirits fighting chess, you know, a chess board game to get, see who gets their, their sustenance or whatever. And more of like almost kind of an archetypal idea of, like the gods that represent different qualities in humans and and how those balance out. So that's something I've always thought about with that as well. Uh, when they drive off and uh, the one-armed man leaves, Leland, uh, Laura says to Leland, he looked familiar. And he says, he didn't look for, did, did he look familiar? Did he look familiar to you? It's, it's an interesting little aside. Why does he look familiar to Laura? Uh, we don't know from anything in the film itself. There's no sense because uh, I don't think she's seen Mike in her dreams or anything like that. Maybe somehow he resonates with the arm in her mind. Maybe it's the ring that looks familiar, and that's what she's recognizing, as she realizes later, and that's what she means by that. She does piece together the ring, uh, seeing it with Teresa, seeing it with uh, Gerard, and seeing it with uh, the the arm. She adds all this up in her room later at night, says the same ring, realizing these connections. And in that moment, too, we're seeing the significance of the ring in different ways as this connection to the Lodge world, as this uh, symbol of Teresa and her mystery and what was taken from her, and uh, and also possibly something to do with Laura's own knowledge of her father as her abuser and, and the fact that as he's showing her this ring, the one-armed man screams at her, it's him, it's your father. The The electricity that, it, that kind of buzzes outside of the room, I mentioned how this is associated with Bob in some way, uh, but with the spirits maybe in general, we see almost something similar with the angel, like a warmer sense of it. And uh, it, it also, there's, there's a similar sort of light flickering on her when she is, when she sees Donna in uh, the the party land and 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 goes to like chase after her, but electricity in general seems to be a kind of a spiritual force, as I mentioned, that has more or less replaced the owls. I think at this point, more of a Lynchian touchstone. The owls were more of a Mark Frost idea, and when Bob enters later, 
uh, into her room, there's also that same sort of bluish electric. Um, it flickering isn't exactly the right word because it's not staccato. It's more of like a flow of 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 light and electricity. Hard to describe exactly. And there's no noise in the sequence except the fan whirring in the background. I like that. I like that that they just take out everything else and it gives it this sort of intensity. This this horror, this discomfort. It reminds me of a scene near the end of Eraserhead, which I've actually cut together with this scene in a video one time, cutting back and forth between those two moments uh, because they have so many other things in common as well, but also that kind of sound texture matches nicely. And then there's the uh, the white horse again appearing to Sarah Palmer. The question is like, why now? We know Lara is going to die soon, but this isn't exactly her moment of death. And a lot of people associated the, the pale horse with death as kind of a mythological motif. But there is a kind of a death, a spiritual death that she's experiencing in this as well. It could also just be that really the horse, it wasn't so much death that it signified as Leland's abusive nature coming out. And, uh, and it could be that's what it's associated with. It's obviously the fact that it appears to Sarah repeatedly has some suggestiveness to it, this notion of something suppressed emerging, and she always seems to pass out right after the horse appears. So I don't know, a lot, lot to, uh, a lot of possibilities there, I suppose. Mark Frost has talked, and I talked about this in the uh, Killers Reveal episode. Uh, he associated with like the, you know, the the pale horse motif, and uh, I think the uh, Revelations or something like that, and. Uh, David Bushman, the guy interviewing him, points out Lynch is a fan of a film called, uh, I can't remember what it is now, but it's a famous French film of like the 50s or 60s where they show a horse being slaughtered. It's like a sort of documentary experimental film. And uh, this uh, that Lynch has mentioned this having a big impact on him. Uh, it's by Georges Franjou, I think, but I, I don't know why I can't remember the name. And so David Bushman wondered if maybe that's where the white horse came from, this symbol of purity being hacked to pieces and all bloody, and then using that right before Maddie is killed. And I suppose here it's, again, like, even if he's not literally killing her in this moment, there's there's a slaying that's going on as well. The film is Blood of the Beasts, actually. It's uh, from 1949, so earlier than I thought, but a big influence on some of the more experimental filmmakers of the 60s, I know that they, they cited it for that that reason. So now we're moving toward the end of the film, and uh, after everything that happens inside of the train car with Bob and Leland flipping back and forth, Laura seeing Leland, uh, seeing Bob in the mirror, the, the arm, the flashes of the arm laughing for some reason as all of this is going on, is this a enthusiastic laughter is this kind of a weird manic horrified laughter it's a strange cut in that moment and again it adds to this confusion of is he enjoying what bob is doing is he opposed to it is this kind of a panic uh what like what is happening here what is this conjunction between the arm and bob and how does it relate to mike is mike really working against the arm as he supposedly is on the show where he had to cut it off and of course, in the final moment, we see the one-armed man and the arm together in there. The arm is, uh, this is when uh, the, the little man puts his hand on the, on the one-armed man's shoulder, 
And interestingly, he doesn't look at Bob. He looks at the one-armed man, and the one-armed man speaks in unison with him. And I and they says, Bob, I want all my Garmin Bosia. And I get the sense watching this that actually in this moment, he's just speaking through Mike. Like they're not speaking in unison. This is uh, Gerard or Mike as like a mouthpiece somehow for the arm. But they're together in this. So why did he go back there to the arm? Why are they linked up? There's so many questions from this. And I, I have to say, I, I don't necessarily have the answers to some of this. Um, but some have interpreted, there's these videos by someone on YouTube, Selfie El, El Maisy 8, where they make these videos saying that Mike is the true face, or the arm rather, the, the, uh, the little man is the true face of Mike, that it's not so much he's like a part of Mike, but actually this is Mike's essence. And maybe, uh, I, I, you know, you could, you could speculate when he cut off the arm, did he separate himself from his essence? And that was a problem, even though he thought he was separating himself from evil. Just, again, more really more questions here than answers necessarily. I'll link that video in the show notes as well. It's interesting that in this film, uh, even though he seems to be in mic mode, in the spirit mode with the bellowing voice and the knowledge of what's going on the whole time, he's not like the, the mild-mannered shoe salesman. Uh, this character is still credited as Philip Gerard in the credits, not as Mike. I find that compelling as well. Like, why call him by the host's name if it seems to be the spirit that we're always seeing? And of course, that whole aspect, that's another sort of confusing aspect too, is like, if we see in this film a more complicated relationship between Bob and Leland, are we also seeing a more complicated relationship with Gerard and Mike, not to mention the arm? Um, You can speculate and, and meditate on all of that. Finally, I noticed in the red room at the end when Laura is there, she's there with Cooper. There's this idea that this is the Cooper probably who was stuck in the lodge, although I think we can dig even deeper into that, uh, maybe at another point. And there is like a, a feeling that somehow in their loss and their sorrow, they've found sort of a solace together. He almost seems to be comforting her. Um, I get the sense maybe he's the one calling up the angel in this moment that is is present for for Laura in the red room. And uh, there's others who have other really unique interpretations of that that we'll discuss where it's like, w- w- is she actually looking at the angel? Is she looking at something flickering in the distance? And what could that be? What, what does that symbolize? One other thing I noticed in the red room, though, is there's a Saturn lamp on the table that's always been there. It's been there since the first time they show the red room and something that always, that, that I don't know, always, it seems like a more recent thing I thought of, but something that occurred to me is of course, in mythology, uh, Saturn is a God that eats his children. So in the context of Laura and how she got here, that certainly seems, uh, to resonate. The first bit of the uncanny that we see in the missing pieces is the number six utility pole, with the sound of like the little man whooping uh, going over the soundtrack as we tilt down that pole. And there's just something, it we can see that it's some sort of gateway to the spirit world, mostly because we hear that whooping as we do in Firewalk With Me, but also because in this film, or in this assembly of scenes at least, it transitions directly into the convenience store sequence. I'm going to read all of the lines that are in the missing pieces, 
and not in Firewalk with me. So these were lines that were scripted and shot, uh, maybe maybe improvised on the spot, but I think almost all of them are in the script as well, uh, that for whatever reason didn't make it into the film. They just ruined the rhythm, most likely. Uh, I don't think there's any more significance to them than that, but let's hear what they were. One of them was the little man saying, the chrome reflects our image. This is something I think, uh, all of these lines I think are things that I'm going to discuss more with listener feedback. Uh, I know a lot of you love to pick into sort of every every little bit of the mythos and, and talk about what they mean. And that's something I would like to engage with. But for myself, I take them at a little bit more of an abstract kind of poetic level. Um, I don't know that I'm always sort of picking up on necessarily every, I don't know if literal is the right word, but every every way that you could interpret it to tie in with the mythology. But I think it's fair, anytime they talk about reflections, I think it's fair to ponder the relationship between the spirit world and the human world, in which you're seeing these sort of echoes, particularly in Firewalk with me, these echoes between what's happening on one level and what's happening on another. You know, I've talked about this, how uh, Leland's is triggered by the image of Laura and Donna to remember Laura and Renette, and that's when Mike in the form of Philip Gerard races up and accosts them. Uh, Laura has lost her diary, she's sort of forlorn, and that's when we see the Tremonts come in and present her with a picture, which gives her another route to kind of escape her reality, and so forth. Another line that the little man says is, From pure air, we have descended from pure air, going up and down, intercourse between the two worlds. A line that the electrician says is animal life. Make of that what you will. I'm not sure I have any thoughts on that other than a sort of commentary on how the spirits view the humans in relationship to themselves, possibly. And, uh, you know, also the idea of sort of animating flesh, this, this, the, you know, with electricity, uh, you know, if you're thinking sort of a Frankenstein thing, this idea of vivifying life through the, the electro, through the, you know, the, the charge of electricity. Bob says, and I think this is his only line, period. I don't think he has a line of Firewalk with me, in this sequence, I mean, that I can think of. Nothing's coming to mind, but in the missing pieces, he says, I have the fury of my own momentum. This is just a great line, and I think it, it does signify that he maybe has some independence from the rest of the Lodge, from the rest of these spirits we see here. That's a very common reading of this. And then we also get the line, Firewalk With Me, where we literally say the title of the movie. I recently saw a montage with uh, just characters saying the name of whatever movie they were in, you know, just one after the other after the other. It's kind of funny. Actually, Laura says it to Harold uh, in his place, so that's not true. And uh, the little man is the one who says, Firewalk With Me. And we may hear it as well in, uh, fire in, in the film, um, in this scene, but I don't think so. So there are some lines that are also in Firewalk With Me that we hear in the missing pieces just uh, overlap because so many of these are obviously extended scenes and not just deleted scenes. We hear electricity, Garmin Bosia, this is a Formica table, green is its color, fell a victim, and with this ring, I thee wed. If you notice uh, in both Firewalk With Me and the missing pieces, the ring shape is missing from the Formica tabletop. We get a little bit of a better view of that, I think, in the missing pieces because we spend longer there. We see uh, Laura's face emerge over the image of the Red Room as we're kind of dissolving between worlds. This idea that, well, there's a few things I like about it. One is, you know, just reminding us this connection between Laura and the mythology. In a way, she's an object of their intentions. They're trying to work out their uh, their battle over Garmin Bosier or whatever through her. But you can also look at it the reverse way, which I usually 
really like to do. The idea that she is kind of the force powering them in a way that this is, in a sense, maybe not literally, given you know the interaction we between, see between the supernatural and the real world in Twin Peaks, but in a sense, this is almost all in her head. And I like the way that Lynch composes this image uh, to convey that in a way, where you have Laura's eyes over the curtain and her mouth over the floor, uh, just the way that her face is filling the frame there. So there's almost sort of an idea of the curtains and the floor as different elements of being in a way, you know, depending how far you want to read into this, of a consciousness that goes on uh, infinitely because you never really see the tops of the curtains or any sort of ceiling. And then this floor with the division on it that, uh, you know, this sort of duality that uh, you can get trapped in. And, and of course, Lynch, if we're going to keep digging into this analogy, which of course I am, uh, Lynch has a distrust of speech, well noted, where he feels like communication can confuse things and express, doesn't really fully express consciousness. So, you know, the idea of the mouth over this jagged uh, juxtaposition of the two colors on the floor uh, versus the smooth kind of uh, infinite reach of the curtains. Nice, nice little thing to notice there. We also see in a more of a seemingly literal analogy or on the nose analogy that the spirit creatures dissolve into the woods like they're almost composed over this foggy shot of the trees at this idea that they inhabit the woods somehow that the woods are like manifestations of the spirit world which we see at other points in Twin Peaks as well. In the missing pieces and certainly not in the uh in in firewalk with me we see jeffrey's flash onto the stairway in this almost kind of maybe x filesy or even like men in black kind of way where he just zaps there's like an explosion he zaps onto the stairs he wasn't there and now he is this to me watching the missing pieces before seeing the return just having seen the series in firewalk with me this felt like the most overt supernatural intervention in the human world that uh, I had seen at any point in Twin Peaks. You know, I think we've already gotten a sense that, yes, it is a real, it's a real space. It's not just a mental space. But to see that this is like broad daylight in front of witnesses at this foreign location. It's got nothing to do with Twin Peaks directly. It just, it feels on another level. And I was actually a little uh, uncertain about it, seeing the missing pieces for the first time. Because it's like, well, I like that ambiguity where it's always like the spirits could sort of be this metaphysical, uh, almost, but, but almost psychological realm. Uh, whereas this is like literal kind of time travel and zapping through space. But it's a fun moment as well. It it's definitely gives it a big sci-fi kind of tinge. The only other moment in Twin Peaks that I think can rival it for being explicit about the supernatural connection to the human world is the scene where Cooper goes into and later comes out of Glastonbury Grove in uh, episode 29 and, and Truman witnesses it when we see the little man in the red room with cooper and i think maybe before cooper arrives we see the ring on the table and he waves his hand over it similar to the motion that he makes over the formica table he makes over this marble table in the red room so again there's this connection between these two uh spaces and we hear the disembodied whooping again as the little man waves his hand over that table. In this film, we get, uh, in this uh, assembly, we get a more concrete idea, I think, of Bob or the fan as a vessel for Bob. We hear his voice while the fan's going in Firewalk With Me, but in this, we get these shots of the fan closing in on it from Laura's point of view as we hear Bob's voice just really reinforcing the idea that it's some sort of conduit for him, which makes a good deal of sense since it's also 
uh, a crucial tool in Leland's abuse of Laura. So it makes sense that this would be a place that Bob would come out of. And the fact that, you know, with the electricity and the air and everything, it's it's an intersection between those worlds. There's a great, great scene in this uh, in terms of talking about how this, uh, how the missing pieces deals with the spirit world and all of that, probably the best scene is the scene of Laura smiling, where her just smile gets broader and broader, and it's so cool. It's some great Lynch art, like it looks like it could be some weird sort of photo montage or something in a museum that he would do. Uh, she just, her eyes get wider, the smile gets wider. I think it's digital manipulation uh, in cahoots with a great performance from Cheryl Lee, but I think he stretched it out. I don't think this is something he would have done uh, in 1992 had he edited these scenes then. I'm not even sure it's something he could have done, at least in this way. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but that's the impression I get from looking at it. There's a scene in The Missing Pieces where Gerard, Philip Gerard, is uh, lighting candles by basically putting them out backwards. In this scene, the ring of candles around him looks a lot like the ring. I mean, I think it's the exact same number of candles and, and design and everything. The the rings that we see in Bob's lair, uh, a little bit in the Red Room Dream on the show, but mostly in the alternate ending of the European version of the pilot, where we see Bob in his criminal lair, and there's this weird ritualistic ring of candles that he's standing in the middle of. So this is definitely a callback to that. With Teresa kind of, you know, showing R the ring, not showing it to her, but just brushing her hair and Laura catching sight of it. The way the missing pieces deals with that moment is we have like a weird bleached out freeze frame of Laura in the moment of seeing Teresa's ring. It's almost like it's it has some power over her or is hypnotizing her or something. I'll be honest, I don't quite know what to make of that other than just a cool aesthetic moment with something Lynch had shot for other reasons since in the uh, film it's used in uh, the montage where she's realizing what the ring is. Finally, there's the last scene with the little man where he says, uh, Cooper asks him what to do, how to get out of here, and, and the little man says, there's no place to go but home and starts cackling. And of course, this feels like, especially, you know, a few months after the missing pieces were released, when we realized there was going to be more Twin Peaks, this feels like some sort of vague teaser for the return. There's also a scene where the nurse takes the ring from Annie. What does this mean in terms of the larger scope of the ring? Well, knowing what we know so far, which is just from Firewalk With Me in this, in this uh, scene, it feels like a little bit of a contradiction, because in Firewalk With Me... The ring is presented as Laura's way to somehow defeat Bob, the fact that, or, or at least force him to kill her and therefore not be able to possess her, which is what he wants. It's some sort of protection for her. And it's this mysterious object that all these characters are curious about, uh, primarily Chet, and when he reaches for it is when he disappears. So in a way, this nurse scene corresponds with some of that. It certainly corresponds with the idea of the ring as a conduit to the spirit world, as some sort of signifier of information, because Annie is repeating the same line that she says in her dream. The good Dale is in the lodge, write it in your diary. She's saying this in the hospital as the nurse is standing over her, and then the nurse takes the ring, just like Laura gets the ring in the dream. So there's, again, this echo between dream and reality and this idea that somehow the ring is passed along when you receive some sort of information. And I certainly had an idea watching this in 2014. We haven't seen the last of this nurse. We're going to see her again. And whether that's true or not, you can watch The Return if you haven't seen it yet and listen to my coverage of those episodes to hear about that. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed our Friday the 13th session in the spirit world. Tomorrow's episode is going to be focused exclusively on the missing pieces. 
we're going to begin to dig into the narrative of Firewalk With Me through this, talking about the story, Laura storylines, the subplots. That we're going to be moving backwards through that from sort of the least important or most peripheral toward the most important. So it's going to end with a Laura Palmer. And then we'll finally have our three questions, but just for the missing pieces. Um, who is Laura Palmer? Who's Agent Cooper? What is Twin Peaks? As applies to the deleted scenes and what they tell us about those subjects. Uh, we'll also cover the who killed Laura Palmer question as uh, the missing pieces focuses it. So we'll see you tomorrow. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And you can become a patron at patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Um, you, Greg.